this morning, and Tom handed me the regular mail, but there was a package included in the mail. Now, for context, let me say, this week, Facebook decided to post a picture of me when I was in, I think, third or fourth grade, which I had posted years ago, and so Facebook reposted it. And almost instantly, Micah decided it needed to be a meme. And so he made my little fourth grade self in my snazzy little sweater, in my little school picture, he made me say, with a, a thought bubble above me, he made me say, this was all introduction. <laughs> and I laughed out loud. You, you laughed out loud. Well, then, thank him. That was his doing. So... So I got here this morning, and I got a very nice package from one of our internet listeners with a, a birthday card and this T-shirt, <laughs> which says, Romans 5, 1 to 2, 
this is all just introduction. And says Grace Christian Assembly on the back. So I'm anxious to wear it. So I'm very grateful for that. So let's just assume that everything I've said for the last 15 and a half years is technically introduction to get us ready for 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn there. Now let's start by admitting that this is going to be a relatively, if not controversial, at least emotional passage of scripture for many, many people. Because the subject of this entire chapter, and it's a fairly long chapter, but the subject of the chapter is marriage. And in the modern day in which we live, there are plenty of people who have had problems with their marriages. And so they read this section of the Bible and think, oh, I wish so-and-so knew this. I wish my ex knew this. I wish the person I was married to knew this. But Paul intends that we individually know it. Now, a lot of this is just going to be Paul laying out a basic theology of how the church should approach the question of marriage. Now, there are segments of the book of Ephesians where he delves deeper into the marriage relationship. There are certainly passages in Matthew, which we've read, where Jesus digs deeper into the actual marriage relationship. But this apparently is Paul answering a question that was predominant there in Corinth because the very first sentence of chapter 7 says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And one of the big questions, and he's going to spend a fair amount of ink and papyrus on this, so it seems to be a fairly big deal. One of the big questions was, if a person becomes a believer, but their mate does not become a believer, then their mate is worldly. Their partner is technically unclean. So then should they remain with the unbelieving partner? Or should they send the unbelieving partner away? Should they send them out of the house? And this seemed to be a really big deal. And you can see how people could, could debate this at length. Well, then, should a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever remain? Or would the right and the holy thing to do be for the believer to send away the unbeliever so that they are not ceremonially unclean as a result of their marriage? So Paul is going to address that. But Paul is also going to say some things that sound here in the 21st century kind of peculiar, like whatever state you were in when you were called to Christ, remain in that state. If you were single when you were called, then stay single. If you were married when you were called, stay married. But then he even says, if you're a slave, stay a slave. Don't try to be free. If you, if you get the opportunity to be free, he's going to say, go ahead and take it. But, but there's a context to the comments that Paul is making. And the context starts about verse 29. Let's start there so that we can understand Paul's thinking Paul believes that Jesus is going to be right back. Jesus had left the planet. He had sailed off into the blue after his disciples had asked him, 
will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so their expectation is that when Christ returns, the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, he's going to return and establish the kingdom, and that kingdom is going to belong primarily to Israel. So when are you going to do that? There was this very genuine anticipation that he was going to return in their lifetimes and restore the kingdom to Israel. And Paul seemed to think that too. And by the way, I think that too. And in fact, every generation of Christians for the last 2,000 years have hoped and prayed that they would be the generation that would be on the planet when Jesus came back. Now I can say without hesitancy that with each generation that goes by, we're getting closer. <laughs> he's going to come back, and my hope is that he's going to come back in my lifetime. But now that the majority of my lifetime is behind me instead of ahead of me, if it turns out that I have to spend some time in the dirt, then trust me, I'll be up again, and I'll be part of the kingdom that he's coming back to establish. Plan A, rapture, instantaneous change. This mortal puts on immortality. This corruptible puts on incorruptibility in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. That's plan A because I'm not, as I've often said, I am not afraid of death because that's just stepping into eternity. But I am afraid of the process of dying because I've had a few brushes with that, and it can be ugly. And I would rather instantaneously change into a glorified body. That sounds good. I want hair is really what I, I want to instantly be changed to the best possible version of me and taken to be with my Lord in heaven and then take up my residence in New Jerusalem. That's just too grand for me to fathom. So Paul believed that was going to happen in his generation. Starting at verse 29, he says, But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as those who did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. So he really believed the time was short, and that's the reason for a lot of the argument that he's going to make in chapter 7. When he says to the single people, stay single. When he says to the married people, stay married. When he says to the servants and the slaves, and he says, stay a servant. Well, that's why, because he believes that Jesus is going to be back so soon that the cares of this world don't really matter. So I think in several ways, we sort of know something that Paul didn't know, which is that there would be a 2,000-year gap so far that Jesus has not returned. And so I appreciate the fact that when Paul says these things, he then modifies them and says, stay single, stay like I am, stay single, but if you marry, you haven't sinned. 
And so he's going to qualify the things that he's going to say, and so they do apply to us here today. Because the theme, the underlying theme of this entire chapter is, how can I better serve God? How can I be a better servant to the Lord? That's the underlying theme. Now, you can read lots and lots of commentaries. And they will debate whether or not Paul had ever been married. There are certainly commentaries that say for him to have been a member of the Sanhedrin that he would have had to be married. However, Paul never actually says that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He does argue that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews before the law blameless, that he was a Pharisee, and he may have been in some sort of path that would have led to the Sanhedrin to the ruling body, but he never said that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. But as we read through chapter 7, you're going to see him give some practical advice about marriage that indicates that he is pretty intimately familiar with it. But we don't know whether Paul was ever married. All we know is when he wrote these words, he was unmarried. Now, there are three different groups that he's going to address here. He's going to address virgins, people who have never been married, have never had a sexual union. That's one category of unmarried, the virgins. But then he's also going to speak about those who had been married and are not married anymore because they were widowed, because they stayed with their partner until their partner died. That's another category of unmarried. But then he's also going to address people who have been married, and for whatever reason, their marriage was dissolved, and at the current time, they remain unmarried. So Paul's going to address all three of those categories in this chapter. And he's going to conclude, finally, that it's just easier, given the persecution that was going on within the church, given the debates that were going on in the church about whether or not an unsaved spouse was clean or unclean, given all of that, he concluded, it's better to just remain unmarried, regardless of whether you were a virgin or a widow or had been divorced. It was just better to remain unmarried so that, again, underlying theme, so that you could serve the Lord. But then he's realistic enough to say, but if you marry, it's okay. If you marry, that's fine. I'm just trying to save you, he says toward the end of this chapter. I'm just trying to save you the trouble. And everybody who's been married, see, you laughed so quickly. Everybody who's been married has to admit that there is a certain amount of effort you got to put into it. And there is a certain amount of trouble that comes with it. So that was indeed all introduction. I feel bad now. I have to wear the T-shirt. <laughs> so let's start at verse 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I think what he's getting at here is it's best that a man not be involved physically with a woman. Not that there's anything wrong with women. But remember, this is a largely patriarchal society. And so Paul is addressing his comments primarily to men. 
But in a moment, you're going to see that Paul also sees an equality between men and women. He is not saying that women are any lesser than men or that women are just inherently untouchable. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, now the NASB says immoralities, it is the word pornaya. The word pornaya in Greek does cover a wide range of sexual sins. It can include adultery. It can include fornication. It is the word from which we get the modern English word pornography. And so because he's realistic about, in this case, the minds of men, he knows that some people just can't contain themselves. They would rather touch a woman. And so he says, if you do it outside the bonds of marriage, then that becomes an immorality for you. So because of those immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now, once again, there you see the one man, one woman concept. You might remember back in Matthew, and we may turn to it in a minute. We may look at it. But the Pharisees asked Jesus, why does Moses allow that a man can divorce his wife for any reason? Because under the law, under the things that Moses had prescribed, a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason. If you got up in the morning and you didn't like the way the pancakes were done, out of the house. You could give her a bill of divorcement. You could put her out for just about any reason. Jesus' answer for why Moses allowed that, and here again, this answer is to men. He said it was because of the hardness of your hearts. And so it's really a matter of kindness. Rather than making a woman stay with an unkind man, with a hard-hearted man, with a man who was likely to put her out for any reason at all, Moses allowed that the man could put the woman out because of the hardness of men's hearts. But then Jesus took the time to say, but it wasn't like that from the beginning. In the beginning, back in the Garden of Eden, God, who's in charge of human relationships, made one man and one woman. And he put them together in the marriage relationship and said that a man was going to leave his father and his mother and was going to cling to his wife and that the two were going to become one flesh. So whether it's Paul, whether it's Jesus throughout the Bible, the standard is one man, one woman in marriage that's the only allowable sexual relationship. Anything else falls under the category of pornia. So because of these immoralities, let each man have his wife and let each woman have her husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Do I need to explain that to anyone? I mean to the grown-ups in the room. Christian, you have no idea what we're talking about, right? Okay, just wanted to check. Basically, don't defraud each other. Gosh, it's, it's so tempting to talk about the, the number of conversations I've had with married people who, when they talk about what the problems are in their marriage, this is one of the big problems that comes up so frequently because that separation between the man and the woman 
physically, sexually, creates all kinds of tension and problems between them. And so Paul very practically says, don't do that. Don't defraud each other. Here's his thinking. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So Paul's attitude is, do not defraud each other. Keep the intimacy going in your marriage, and then neither one of you will be tempted to step outside the marriage to gain that physical satisfaction and fall into the pornaya category, fall into the immoralities category. Be satisfied with your husband. Be satisfied with your wife. Also remember that throughout the Bible, the two have become one flesh. And if that is true, then the ownership of each of them belongs to them and their partner because they are one flesh. So he says in verse 5, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again unless Satan tempt you because of your lack of control. Remember, he's talking to men. I can't possibly explain this to you women. But every man in the room knows what Paul is talking about. Because the male mind just constantly, especially the young testosterone-fueled brain of a young man, constantly thinks about sexual things. Any man who tells you any differently is trying to uh, sell you something. But the fact is, a man who is not satisfied at home has a tendency to wander. And the reason for that tendency is because the male mind has been tempted by Satan to go out and commit, again, the pornaya, the immoralities. The best way to defend against that is to not deprive each other, satisfy each other, and that way you're going to keep Satan from being able to tempt either one of you because of your lack of self-control. And there's not a man in here who won't admit that self-control is just a difficult thing. Can I get a witness? No, not a one of you want to raise your hands. <laughs> not a one of you. But am I telling the truth, men? Have I said anything yet you would disagree with? And I know you women don't get it. And God bless you. <laughs> but the male mind is a, a rough place to be. So then, having laid out these basic things that are an answer to the things that they wrote about, he then says, but this I say by way of concession and not by command. I really like this about Paul. When it's Paul talking about Paul's opinion Paul takes the time to tell you, this is what I think. I've been around, I've talked to a lot of people, I have the mind of the Lord, and I think this is the right way for you to go. But when it's the Lord that spoke it, he takes the time to say, this is a command from the Lord. This is right from God. But every once in a while, Paul adds the benefit 
of his years in ministry and dealing with many people. And so sometimes he says, but I say this by way of concession and not by command. And yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. He wished that the men, the Christian men, the devoted to God men would remain in the state that he was in, but he took the time to say, but I say that by concession, not by command. If you're married, fine. If you're single and you're going to get married, fine. In a moment, he's going to say, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's better for a male who simply can't avoid the immoralities to go have his own wife. But it's better to devote yourself to God and just remain unmarried, in Paul's view. So I say this by way of concession and not by command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that manner. So now Paul is conceding that the fact that he is able to remain single and do the work of the ministry is a gift from God. The fact that he was able to remain by himself, to remain celibate, to devote his time and attention to God was a gift from God. And not everybody has that gift. I can't say to a young man like Jean Tu, be like I am. Because he'd have every right to say, you're 61 and decrepit. I can't be like you. (laughs) Instead, Paul admits that some people have the gift of singleness. And that's okay. In far too much of the church, they seem to look down on single people. And they seem to think the only way you can be fully Christian and be fully orbed in the experience of Christianity is to be married. This is especially true if you stand in a pulpit like I do. There are people who think, well, you can't stand in the pulpit and have gone through what Jim has gone through. I heard a preacher one time on the radio say that very thing, that if you were divorced at all, you were disqualified from the ministry. I heard it one day on the radio about 12 years ago. And it caused me to go back and read and read and read and go back to my Bible. And does the Bible say anywhere that a man whose marriage has fallen apart is disqualified from the ministry? And the answer is no. It's not in there anywhere. And so I decided I'm going to go with the Bible, not with the opinions of people. Paul wishes that all men would remain as himself. And Not bragging, but I've managed to do that for almost 14 years now. And as a result, I've been able to dedicate myself, devote myself to this work. So I took him at his word. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried... And to the widows. Okay, now that's really interesting because now he has differentiated the unmarried from the widows. And in a moment, he's going to talk about the virgins. So there are those who have never been married. Those are the virgins. 
And there are those who are widows, but then he also talks to the unmarried. And he seems to place himself in that category. Again, we know nothing about Paul's marital status. We don't know if he was ever married or if he wasn't, but again, the indication seems to be that at some point he was, but we don't know. We have no information. So he says, I'm going to say this to the unmarried and to the widows, that it is good for them to remain even as I. So if you find yourself in an unmarried state, remain there is Paul's advice. Now it's worth saying again, Paul is saying this because he thinks Jesus is coming right back. If you do not have self-control, verse 9, speaking to the men here, if they do not have the self-control to remain unmarried, well then let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn. I heard a preacher one time, this goes all the way back to Los Angeles, who was talking in favor of everybody within the church being married, and he was castigating single people, and he was saying that if you died in a single state, you were going to burn in hell. And it was because of that verse, it's better to marry than to burn. <laughs> That's not what that verse is talking about. Paul is talking about how men have the desire to have a woman partner and it's better to marry in that case rather than burn with passion. That's the word he's using. And I am not threatening you, young men who are not married, to get married or burn. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be setting up matches right now. But to the married, I give this instruction. Then look at the next words. But not I, but the Lord. Okay, so now Paul is telling us, this is my opinion, but now I'm going to give you a command right from God. This is from the Lord. This is from Jesus. Here's a command, not from me, but from the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Now, we have to talk a little bit about this leaving concept, because Paul is going to use the same word over and over, but in a patriarchal society again, if the man told the wife to leave, that was considered putting the wife out of your house, telling her to depart, and the modern translations render that divorce. But it's the same word here, that a woman should not divorce her husband, and that the husband should not divorce the wife. So actually, the way Paul wrote it, there was an equality between men and women. Here's what he had to say. To the married, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send his wife away. That's that same one word. Should not divorce his wife. So again, as far as Paul is concerned, once you're married, when you make the vow that you're going to stay together until death, especially if you make that vow in front of God and the people of God, that that should be a vow that continues for the rest of your life. In a moment, he's going to qualify that statement. But 
his intention is that marriage remain sacred and that marriage remain one man, one woman for the rest of their life for a whole host of reasons, not only for the companionship and not only for the sexual relationship, but also because marriage is an emblem of Christ and his church. And so two Christians who are married to each other should recognize that they are emblematic of Christ and his relationship with the church and ought to live with each other in regards to that. But also, I have said this so many times, if I knew that Jesus was going to be back in two weeks, like I knew for sure, like a week from Thursday, Jesus is coming back. Someone's going to take that snippet out of context, and they're going to say, Jim just said that a week from Thursday, Jesus is coming back. But if I knew it for a fact, I could put up with just about anything for the next two weeks. <laughs> One thing I know I'd do is run up my credit cards. <laughs> There'd be nobody to catch me. But I could put up with anything if I knew he was going to be right back. And so for the people who were unhappy in their marriages, Paul could say to them, remain in your marriage. Don't divorce each other. Stay in the state that you're in because Jesus is going to be right back. So to the married, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave the husband, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce or send away his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. Notice this is now Paul giving his opinion. He's now going to speak to those people who are in a mixed marriage where there's a believer and an unbeliever in the marriage. Let me see if I can kind of Put this in the modern context for you. Because Paul is about to make a really good argument. There's an old joke that goes, uh, when two people get married, the two become one. And they spend the next seven years arguing about which one. <laughs> You're going to become me. I'm going to become you. And so this was a big deal in the Corinthian church. You have two people who are heathen people, which is, by the way, the word I've been looking for all morning that my brain just found. You've got two people who are heathen people living in Corinth, and now Paul comes and preaches Christ. And the husband may accept Christ. The husband may be baptized. Now, in so doing, in his acceptance of Christ, he is also bringing persecution to the family. Not only the Jewish persecution that was going on in Jerusalem, but as the Roman persecution started spreading throughout the empire of Rome, as they were knocking down doors and finding people who were in the way and feeding them to lions or using them to light Nero's garden, as the persecution continued, naturally the unbeliever would ask the believer, what are you doing? We've got children. We've got a family here. And all of a sudden, you're professing this Christ and you've brought all this trouble on us. And so the Corinthians were naturally asking the question, well then, should the believer stay with the unbeliever? And 
does the unbeliever affect the believer so that the believer is no longer consecrated to the Lord? Because again, they're one flesh. Or does the believing partner consecrate the unbelieving one in such a way that as the two are one flesh, they are considered still to be holy in front of God? Which way does this thing work? You get the argument? You get the, the debate? And so Paul's going to argue, again, in the grace of God, that it is not that the holy one, the consecrated one, the believing one, has been taken down by the unclean partner. Instead, he's going to say, it's that the unclean partner is brought up by the Christian in the house. So here's his argument. To the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, well, then let him not, same word, send her away. Don't divorce her. If she's an unbeliever and she chooses to stay with you, given everything we know about Christianity in the first century, if she chooses to stay, then let her stay. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her. Let her not send her husband away. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is, now this is really interesting. You can read commentary after commentary, and they will tell you that this is the only place in all of Paul's writings where he uses hagiosmos quite this way. The vast majority of the times that you read about sanctification it's a comment on God sanctifying people, God separating people to himself. But here Paul is going to use the word hagiosmos, sanctification, in a way that is more akin to the way that the priests used to sanctify furniture in the temple. They can't do righteousness. They can't do sin. They are an inanimate object, but they have been separated for God's own use. That is not making them righteous. That is not making them justified and holy. It's just making them separated. And Paul seems to be using the word this way because you'll notice that he does not say that God has sanctified the unbeliever. Instead, he says the believing husband sanctifies the unbelieving wife and the believing wife is the one who sanctifies or separates the unbelieving husband but there's a reason for that what's the reason otherwise your children would be unclean so okay let's put this in practical terms so you're a man if you're a woman imagine you're a man it's gonna be really tough just think really corrupt thoughts for about five minutes and you'll be fine. Just, I'm really being hard on men this morning, aren't I? Yeah, I haven't said anything that's not true. Um, so you're a man and you become a believer. And you have a couple of children and you love your children. Now your children have not expressed any love for Christ yet. And your wife does not express any love for Christ. If it were true that her lack of belief and uncleanness is the dominant factor in your marriage, then her uncleanness makes your children unclean and you're instructed 
to depart from the unclean things, and you would have to take the children that you love, the wife that you love, and leave them all because they are unclean. God in his grace says, no, the fact that there's a Christian in the room, in the marriage, is the dominant factor. And because that's the dominant factor, that separates the wife and it makes the children clean so that it's okay for the father who loves his children to still love them. Isn't this a great argument? And I thank God in his kindness, in his grace, that he determined it that way. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified or separated through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean. But now they are, the word is hagios. Now we know that it's not holy the way we think of God is holy, but it's hagios, the opposite of unclean. Paul sets it up as the antonym to unclean. Your children would be unclean, but now they are hagias. They are clean. So he's speaking of them as being ceremonially clean. The reason that I know this for sure is that in a moment, Paul's going to say, now if they leave, let them leave, because how do you know if you will save your wife? Or believing wife, how do you know if you'll save your husband? Okay, so he's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about ceremonially clean or unclean, taking into context, into recognition, that the believing husband does not have the power to save the unbelieving wife. God has to do that. But the believing husband sanctifies the unbelieving wife. You got all that? I know it gets kind of complicated. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean. But now are they holy? Now are they hagios? Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Okay, so I told you that however many years ago, I heard a preacher talk about a man who's divorced can't be in the pulpit, can't serve in the ministry. No divorced men. And this is one of the verses that I landed on where I recognize that Paul's reason for all of his arguments is wrapped up in the phrase, for we're called to peace. And way too much of the church has missed the peace part The church has always been really good at slapping people around when they find them in sin. The church always makes an example of people who are hurting when they ought to be succoring them, when they ought to be holding them, when they ought to be helping them, when they ought to be calling them to peace. So Paul's argument is, if there's a believer and an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves, well, then let them leave. Now, my friend David Morris who's younger than me, smarter than me, better educated than me, and is oftentimes my go-to guy for these kinds of questions, I called him up and I said, what kind of bondage is Paul talking about here? Because he says, if you're the believing person who was left by the unbeliever, 
you're not in any more bondage. I said, what bondage is Paul talking about? And David said, it can only be the bonds of marriage. It can't be any other bondage. And yet, so much of the church world puts you right back in bondage, if that's what happens. If the unbelieving wife leaves, that's it. You're no good to the ministry anymore. Doesn't matter what you know or how God has gifted you. You can no longer work from the pulpit because you're in bondage still. And yet, Paul's argument is they're under no more bond. The bond of marriage has been broken for them. In a moment, he's going to say, it's okay if they remarry. So the bond of marriage has clearly been broken for them. And then Paul says, because we're called to peace. Think about the peace that we've been called to. The word, of course, is uh, irene. It's a word that essentially means the stopping or the ceasing of the againstness. At one point, we were against God, and God was against us. And the fight continued. And the only way that fight between us and God was going to be stopped was going to be if somebody put down their hands, put down their gloves, and said, I'm not fighting anymore. We don't have that ability. We're going to fight the fight because God's going to judge us, and we're against God. And that's what you see everywhere in the whole world, a world that is fully against God. But in some cases, in the instance of any Christian, the fight, the argument, the againstness has ceased because God himself put down his gloves. God stopped the fight, and he stopped the fight through Jesus. He not only stopped the fight, he paid for the sinful attitude of the person who was fighting with him. He paid for the complete sin debt of those people so that now that person and God, there is no more argument between them. And for the first time, genuine peace breaks out between that person and God. And so I don't like it. I heartily reject it. I get all angry and throw things at my radio. Whenever I hear somebody say, if this thing happens in your life, then God's against you. You're in some kind of bondage again. No, Jesus paid for that bondage. And if indeed, let me say this as clearly as I can say it, if indeed the dissolution of your marriage was a sin, it's a sin that Christ paid for. I don't advocate for divorce. It's not a good idea. The Bible all the way through says it's not a good idea. But if a divorce happens, we are called to peace, and our very complete Savior, who saves completely, paid for all our sin, including that one. And so that makes me think that the man who's been divorced, who stands in the pulpit, is just another sinner saved by grace. But that's what the Bible teaches. So Paul says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. 
the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? This is under the heading of let them leave. If an unbeliever leaves the marriage, let them leave the marriage because you don't know if you're going to save them. This is God's decision whether or not he's going to save them. Verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned each one, as God has called each one, in this manner, let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. Was any man called already circumcised? Well, then let him not become uncircumcised. I, by the way, have no idea how you do that. Medically, (laughs) I'm stumped. Has anyone been called and he was uncircumcised? Well, then let him not get circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Okay, we have to talk about all of that combined. First off, do you think when Paul was a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, studying at the feet of Gamaliel, before the law, blameless, do you think at that point he thought circumcision was important? Not only did he think it was important, he thought it was mandatory. That's the problem he had at Galatia, that there were Judaizers who came from James, who came from Jerusalem into Galatia, where there were all of these Gentiles, and they were telling the Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised because they now had faith in the Jewish Messiah, and so they needed to be brought into, at very least, the Abrahamic covenant, but probably the Moses covenant which demanded circumcision. So they were going around demanding circumcision. And now you've got Paul, who spent most of his religious life believing that circumcision was absolutely mandatory, saying to these Gentiles and these Jews at Corinth, saying to them, circumcision's nothing. Circumcision means nothing. What changed? Something changed for Paul. A dramatic, cataclysmic change. Not only was he willing to say that the law was no longer binding on Christians, but he was willing to say that the sign, the seal of the law, which is circumcision, was nothing. That's how much he got rid of the law. As Jeff said a few minutes ago when he read for us out of Romans, and he mentioned that that the law is done away with. The law not only is done away with, but the curse of the law is done away with, and the sign and seal of the law is done away with. Every aspect of the law has absolutely no bearing on the Christian conscience. And so Paul could say, circumcision, which would be a big debate within the Corinthian church, because you've got Jews and you've got Gentiles. And you've got some who are circumcised and some who aren't. And Paul says, look, if you are, stay are. If you aren't, stay aren't. Because that's not an argument. That's not even a debate. Circumcision is nothing. And he can only say that 
if he believes the law no longer applies. So don't miss that because something dramatic has happened in Paul's religious thinking. I would argue that it was being on the Damascus Road and having, the, having a light shine and knock him down and a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus who you persecute. When Jesus interrupted his life, when God put the Holy Spirit within him, well, then everything changed. It wasn't just a modification, and get this right, it wasn't just a modification of his Judaism. It wasn't keep the law and add some Christ to it. It wasn't believe in Christ and keep the law. It was a difference as clear as old and new covenant. The old covenant was done away with in the finished work of Christ, who took the ordinances that are against us and nailed it to his tree, and then became a curse for us, so that the curse that was attendant to the law was fully paid for by Christ, and the sign and the seal of the covenant was also done away with. Paul did not simply modify his Judaism to become a Christian. He became a Christian, and all of those religious practices that were attendant to the law of Moses went away. Do you get that? Do you see how huge the change is? And that is why, again, I get so frustrated to hear preachers send people back to Moses as though Moses has something to do with your sanctification, as though Moses can improve you in some way. Yes, Christ saved you. Yes, Christ gave you the Holy Spirit. Yes, Christ paid the price for your sin debt. But now you got to go to Moses to get better. That's nowhere in the Bible. In fact, what you see in the Bible is an absolutely clear distinction between Moses and the new covenant that can say the sign and seal of the old covenant is now nothing. I still don't think you get it. Otherwise, you'd be jumping out of your chairs. Go ahead, jump out of your chair. Yay, that's what I'm talking about. I got a call this week, by the way, from somebody who was with us last week. I won't name any names. But I got a call this week from somebody who was with us who said, that is so much what I needed to hear. I wanted to jump up and dance around and shout hallelujah. So why didn't you? <laughs> well, I didn't want to bother anybody who'd think I was kind of a nut. Or, you know. <laughs> this is such good news. And thank you for jumping out of your chairs. I'm glad to know I got through to at least one person. So, Oh, that's true. James jumped too. Was any man called already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Okay, that's the next thing we have to talk about. 
Which commandments of God is he talking about? Is he talking about the ten? Remember the ten commandments. I keep drilling this into your head. The ten commandments are called the words of the covenant. And they were written on stone tablets that are called the tablets of the covenant. And they were put inside a golden box that is called the Ark of the Covenant. So you should be getting it now that those ten commandments formed the old covenant, the Moses covenant, the Sinai covenant, were formed on the Ten Commandments. So is Paul saying, go back to the Ten Commandments? He's not saying that. He's saying, follow the commands of God. And what are the commands of God in the new covenant? Trust and believe and have faith in his son. Everything else flows from that. Remember, the Pharisees asked Jesus, what's the great commandment? And they expected him to go to the ten. They expected him to pull out, don't have idols, or no other God before me, or don't kill. Or He didn't do any of that. He went to Deuteronomy and said, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. This is the first commandment. The second's like it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. These are the great commandments. And so even Jesus showed the difference between the old covenant and its commandments and ordinances and the new commandment that says, love God and love your neighbor and all the rest of your behavior will naturally flow from that. Look, I can say, don't commit adultery. I can say it to any person in the room. Don't commit adultery. I'm going to pick on Devante because I have no knowledge of his sexual proclivities. So I have, I can yell at Devante all day. Don't commit adultery. And eventually he's just going to get tired of me yelling. Don't commit adultery. When you leave here, you'll have this face in your memory yelling at you saying, don't commit adultery. Now be honest. I wonder if we can get genuine honesty out of this one. What does my yelling, don't commit adultery, what does it make you want to do? Commit adultery. Commit adultery. Exactly right. Exactly. Paul argues in the book of Romans that he didn't know that he was coveting till the law came along and said, don't covet. And then he found in himself no ability to keep the law. Rather, he found within his members the sin that drove him to covet. So yelling at somebody, don't covet, only makes them want to covet. They didn't know they were coveting until you say, don't covet. I can yell at him all day long, don't commit adultery. It's going to have no effect on him. But if Devante loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if he loves his neighbor so much that he would never hurt or harm his neighbor, I don't have to tell him don't commit adultery because he won't because of his love of God and love of neighbor. So everything else in his life will flow from his love of God and his love of neighbor. And that's very different. The law of Moses yells at you, don't do stuff. And one thing the law cannot do is bend down to help you when you fail. If you don't keep all the rules, if you don't live up to the 613 ordinances, if you don't keep the Ten Commandments, the one thing the law cannot do is reach down to you and say, I'm sorry, that looked tough. I know that one was 
was hard. That's difficult. It, it can't bend. It can only stand against you and say, wrong. You're wrong. And all it can do is yell at you, don't do it. And what did it do for Israel? All of Israel ended up driven out of their land and under the curse of the law because they could not do the law. No matter how many times they got yelled at, they couldn't do it. No matter how many times God brought droughts on them and famines on them, no matter how many times he brought his enemies down on them, no matter how many times he brought wild animals into Israel, no matter how many times he punished them, they've got punishment and he's yelling at them and they could not do it. So that law, that covenant, that relationship with God does not produce actual righteousness. It produces rebellion. So now the new covenant is very diametrically different than the old covenant because the old covenant says, do stuff. And the new covenant says, it's been done. It's already been done. It's already been taken care of. You believe. That's the difference. You believe in Christ who is your complete and utter Savior who has accomplished everything in fulfilling the law, in dying under the curse of the law, in raising to new life, guaranteeing that you will one day become the new man, the new person, the new best version of you you can be, and that when Christ comes back to get you, Paul says, he's not coming back with regards to sin. He came the first time to pay your sin debt, but the sin debt, having been paid, having been completely paid in, in God's economy so that sin is no longer an issue between you and God, Christ is coming back now to receive you to himself without regard to sin because that problem is already solved. So it's dramatically different from do things to it's already been done from do things and establish your own righteousness to believe in Christ, and that establishes your righteousness. And if that is true of you, then your behavior will reflect that. Okay, we're nearly done here. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while you were a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you were able also to become free, well, then rather do that. But he who was called into the Lord while he was a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while he was free is the Lord's slave. Now, that's Paul's little bit of wordplay, but what he's saying is, even in this lifetime, if you're subjected to servitude, if you're subjected to slavery, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you have this great eternal freedom promise to you, whom the Lord sets free is free indeed. And so he said, you can endure as a slave till Jesus comes back because you know that you're truly free in Christ. But then, ironically, he turns that concept on its head and says, now, you free men walking around going, well, I'm not a slave. I'm not a servant. I'm a free man. You free people, if you belong to Christ, you're Christ's slave. 
And you're no longer going to do the things you used to do. You're no longer going to think the way you used to think. You're now going to think the thoughts of God after him. And you're now going to be more concerned about the things of Christ than the things of yourself. You're going to do what Paul said in Philippians 2 when he said that every man is going to look on the things of others and he's going to esteem others as better than himself. That mind is going to overtake you. That mind is going to change you and modify your thoughts and your behavior. And it's going to modify your marriage and it's going to modify your parenting and it's going to modify everything about you because you know that you are a slave to Christ. Here, let's check it. Anybody here ever tried to quit Christianity? Anybody just said, that's enough. I can't do this. This is too hard. I just Have you ever just heard yourself give up? Sure. Why couldn't you do it? Why are you sitting here on a Sunday morning? Because he wouldn't let go of you because you're his servant. And because you belong to him and he bought you with a very high price, you belong to him. And therefore, even at your worst, he still owns you. And that's very, very good news. Because he is going to redeem you and bring you back to himself. I promise we're nearly done. Because he's about to say what I just said. Were you called while you were a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you were able also to become free, then rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while he's a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while he was free is Christ's slave. You were, look at verse 23, you were bought with a price. So therefore, don't become the slaves of men. And that takes us all the way back to, again, what I talked about last week, what, Paul, what Jeff talked about this morning. I just called Jeff Paul. I don't know why I would do that. The same concept. We are free, free indeed. We, there is nothing against us. There is nothing that is illegal against us or unlawful for us. That's what Paul argued last week out of chapter 6. But he does modify it by saying not everything is good for us. Not everything is edifying. But here again, he's taking the time to talk about our exquisite freedom in Christ. We've been bought by Christ. Christ paid a very high price for us. We belong to Christ. So we do have this complete freedom from the law of Moses, this complete freedom from condemnation, this complete freedom from the fear that would otherwise grip us, this complete freedom in knowing that we have genuine peace with God. And knowing that we have all that, we belong to him. And since we belong to him, since we are his slave, we're not to be slave to anybody else. And therefore, if somebody comes along and says to you anything other than what God has said to you, he's lying to you. It's one of the reasons that Paul could say to the church at Galatia, if anybody, even an angel from heaven, comes and preaches anything other than I preach to you, let him be anathema. That's a word that means fit for burning for God's glory. Let him be anathema because he's not saying the truth. So don't be slave to anybody. Even if they're standing in a pulpit somewhere in front of a big church, 
If they say anything that you can't find from the Bible, if you can't find it in the word of scripture, you're not required to pay attention to it. And usually when they say those things, they're trying to enslave you. Here, let's check it out. Betty cannot go to most churches this morning that don't like women wearing pants. But see, the churches that would throw you out have enslaved you. They've enslaved you to a dress. I know churches that say men have to wear a white shirt and a tie, or you don't get in. That's slavery. That's, again, trying to appease a person and their traditions. It's not what God has to say about it. So don't let anybody enslave you. You belong to God. You belong to Christ. Whatever he says is the only thing that counts. And if you are God's slave, then don't let any man enslave you. We're never going to get, I might as well admit it, we're never going to get to where I thought we'd get this morning. <laughs> Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Next week we will start with, now concerning virgins. <laughs> now concerning virgins. He's going to go to the next group of people and talk about them. These are the unmarried, have never been married, and he's going to talk about them. So we'll save that for next week. I think if you walk out with nothing else this morning, walk out with Paul's statement, you've been bought with a very high price, you belong to God, and therefore you should act like it. Don't become slaves to any other men. And then his thinking was, because Christ will be right back, whatever condition you were in, remain in that condition. Does that make sense? Yes. Who would have guessed it? The Bible actually makes sense. <laughs> Are there questions about that? Apply it accordingly. I know it applies to everybody differently. So apply it accordingly. Yes, sir. I'm just curious about the language. Why in verse 10, he says, not me, but the Lord. In verse 12, he says, not the Lord, but I. And it seems like it's not that different of an idea. Why do you think he bothered to frame it that way? Well, let's start with, I think his opinions were always godly opinions because he has said that he has the mind of Christ, that he has the, the spirit of Christ with him when he's making decisions, like the decision that he made to throw the man out of the church that was sleeping with his father's wife. He has the mind of Christ when he expresses an opinion, but I think he was so ruthlessly honest that he would not allow himself to express an opinion and not tell people this isn't from God. I'm writing you a letter. I'm instructing you in the Lord. These are things that God has told me. These are things Christ has instructed me. But when I add my own opinion I think he was just honest enough to say, this is me. I think I have the mind of Christ on this, but I want you to know this isn't from the Lord, it's from me. And yet it's all from the Lord. That's, I think that's the thing. Yes, because the mind of Christ makes it all from the Lord ultimately. Yeah. Oh, you were going to say. I was just going to say that when Paul says that the Lord said something, the Lord specifically said that in his teaching during his earthly ministry. Right. Jesus said in Matthew 5.32, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Right. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Don't 
separate from your wife. But now Paul is addressing something that Christ did not specifically speak to. Right. He, it is still authoritative. It is still inspired. But I think he is, if nothing else, I think he's recognizing the special authority of his Lord Jesus Christ and subordinating his own teaching to that right. teaching. Right, to Christ. And I think that's one of the really um, likable, if I can use the word likable, it's one of the really likable attributes of Paul is that every aspect of his teaching comes directly from the Lord or from the mind of Christ, from the instruction that he's received, and he doesn't wander off into stories or examples. or He just kind of sticks to this is the teaching of God. And he probably knew that marriage was going to become all distorted in the world to come. This was pretty much from the, from the basic beginning, where there was one, one husband and one wife. What do you expect from the world? Don't you expect the world to kind of corrupt everything that God considers holy, separate? Destroying marriage is one of the first things they've tried to do. Well, I would go back before that. Certainly marriage is, the, is ground zero right now for the corruption of the world. But how long have we been killing babies? Once the world kind of accepted that as an okay behavior then they had to come up with something else, and it's the corruption of marriage. And that won't be the end of it. People are just kind of generally accepting the corruption of marriage, so it's going to be something else. There's all kinds of distortions. Yeah, there are a lot of distortions. Paul probably knew these things were coming. Well, if he didn't know it, at least Christ did. Because Christ told us it's going to get worse before it gets better. So I expect it to get worse. Anything else? Yes, sir. You know, Jesus has only been gone for two days. Yes. If a day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day, he's only been gone for two days. We're anxious. <laughs> he's not. He knows the plan. I think we should remember that what we are seeing in our present United States Western culture is not anything new. Right. The Greeks, the Romans, the French in Europe, every culture has dealt with those who have attacked marriage through history because God instituted it. Right. And so it's always been a target for Satan. Well, I think the very fact that the Bible 2,000 years ago addressed these topics means those topics needed to be addressed 2,000 years ago. And they're still current today because humans are humans. And people are people, and generation after generation, they defile themselves the same ways. And yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah were a long time ago. Yes, they were. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.